Hi, this is Dave Kellogg, and you're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast uh, with my co-host, Thomas Otter. Uh, today, we have no special guest. You know, we, we, we figured out that we know a thing or two about product management. Yeah, we are the special we, guests today. We yeah, are yeah, we are the special guests. This it's all about framing. Um, yes, we are the special guests. Thank you. Um, and, you know, we know a thing or two about product management. And I think in listening to this podcast, um, where I was catching up with a few episodes that Thomas ran on his own, and listening to some other podcasts, an interesting theme has come up, which is kind of the difference, basically, from a startup perspective, should I hire a big company PM? And then from a PM perspective... How should I build my resume if I want to go work at a big company or if I want to work at a small company? So what I'd like to do today uh, with Thomas is explore that question, which is really hiring in kind of the job of big versus company, big versus small company PMs with an eye towards those sides of the coin. Well, given what we know, what do I do if I'm a PM? to manage my career appropriately, and flipping it over, if I'm a startup CEO or founder, who should I hire and why? Um, so, Thomas, are you good with that for the topic? I think it's going to be, I think we're going to have some fun with this one, yeah. Yeah. Hi. I think so. I'm looking forward to it. So let's jump in. I'm going to start by asking you a question, and then we could flip it back and forth as you want. But okay. I, I think before we start to explore how to manage your career and, and you know, who should you hire, maybe we should just look at the job itself. And, and do you want to take a swing at kind of, you know, I'll give you one or two questions. Either what is the job of a big company PM versus a small company PM or, or how do they differ? Um, and I'd love to get your take on that as a foundation. Right, right. So um, um, and let me start, maybe. Yeah. So the big company PM... Um, the more important word is the M, you know, is the management word, right? Um, because essentially, as in a large company PM, you, your success is actually determined by your team's success, right? So, uh, a large in a large company, you know, being a, a product leader, your your um, your success is really about how you manage how you manage a team of product managers. How do you guide them? Uh, how you manage your peers in engineering and sales and how you manage upwards, you know, so, you know, you write the word M in big letters, you know. So if you want to be a PM, an influential PM in a large software company, you, you've got to like the cut and thrust of management, of politics, of all those things that go with a very big, very big company. Sure. The politics at small companies and 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 uh, and um, you know that goes on in sort of every organisation. But you know, in big in big big companies, politics becomes professional, and uh, you, you you need to be able to be comfortable and and ready, or at least not naive about dealing with that. You know, that that's that's I think the differentiator from 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 uh, from small to big is in big it's about largely about management. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I, I did not, just for the people listening, I did not know that was going to be your answer. Uh, this isn't rigged or wired, but I, I love it, which is, you know, at a big company, it's lowercase p, uppercase m. And I, and I would argue, and conversely, you know, at a little company, it's uppercase p and lowercase m. Sure. In a small um, company, you're spending all your time like figuring out product product market fit and, you know, you're yeah. dealing with, with those kind of questions, which are, uh, which are very much about the... Crafting the product, right? In in um, uh, uh, in a large company, if you're in a senior position, it, it's 
getting the team to craft the product and and so it's so you're you're building a product through the proxy of other people and that's a very different skill it's, it's something i found when i moved from gartner to 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 sap is that or success factors at gartner you know my productivity was dependent on my own output right it was how many calls i did a day with with end, end users what did i write what keynotes did i speak at blah 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 at the end of the year i could look back and say what did i do and it you know, 90% of what I did was dependent on my own performance, you know, what I'd done. And when I was at, at as a leader at, at SAP in product, it was what the 160 direct reports, the 160 people I had reporting to me did, that was far bigger lever than what I did, right? So t- two, two questions, one very tactical and the other will be more strategic. But the tactical question is, how many developers did you have? Because I know you ran a very large PM organization of, I think you just said 160. What was your PM to, to, to code, coding developer or engineer ratio? Uh, it, it was, it was there, were, there were over, you know, this is at the height of things, there were over a thousand, uh, uh, over a, a thousand engineers, um, uh, oh, five or six to one. Okay, that's, yeah, that's even more than that. Sometimes think, it was yeah. like ten to one. You know, so at some points it was like you know eight to one. You know, eight to one, ten to one. You know, uh, it grew. In high single digits to one. I, I yeah. think it's one of the look in sales and marketing. We we talk, we love ratios, right? BDRs per rep, SEs to rep, managers per rep. You don't hear it as much, at least in my world outside. So so just this is super tactical. But I think what you're saying is your rule of thumb five to ten somewhere from PMs to developers, PMs to edge. Right, all right. Sorry, so I have it backwards. So, by the way, sorry. Edge to PM. Sorry. Not yeah. Like so, <laughs> yeah. This is a. This is always a like. A, yeah. People are always looking for the magic ratio here, you know. Yeah. And there isn't one. Um, Agree. The thing that I watch out for is you know, software companies tend to have these terms like at SAP with this term for we have this term called a team of ten, you know, and um, you know this was kind of in theory was, you know, was SAP's own proprietary definition of what a Scrum team was but you know when you looked at these things we said you know there's a like person doing architect you know person doing scrum master person doing you know po you know and then there's engineers and you know when you looked at a team of 10 there was always like there was always the managerial non-coding roads world roles were filled but then you looked around and said you know hey we're missing three engineers here you know and yeah. Uh, oh yeah yeah one's on maternity leave and you know we want this guy's on long-term sick and oh we've got two vacancies here you know i'm just saying well that's not a team of 10 then that's a team of six <laughs> you know, with 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 two coders and 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 an architect and and I'm sometimes reminded of the you know that cartoon where you have the the you know all these people standing watching the guy dig a hole you know um, yeah uh, and so you've got to be careful of that uh, at the same time you don't want a situation where you have you know wh- where the engineering is you know that ratio gets gets much over ten you know if you've got I think if you've got more than ten engineers to 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 um, uh, a product person. Most of the time, I think that's getting dangerous, but also you don't want three. Yeah. So um, agree with you, by the way. And my, my favorite unit, I mean, just because you know I'm a units guy, I always am looking for the magic ratio. and I know I'll never find it, but because um, there is one, it is not one. 
Uh, but but the, 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 my favorite single metric, Thomas, is developer density or salesperson density. Because to me, it's the exact same problem. You yeah. have people who actually write code and you have all the people around them. You have the people who actually carry a quota and all the people around them. And you want to watch that density. And in my mind, it should be around 40%. Like if, if you've only got 20% of the people the sales are carrying quota, problem. If only 20% of the people on that team of 10 are writing code, problem. Um, yeah. so, so that's so, why. So I actually on that, I've got you know, yep. total random, not really what we plan to talk about today. But yep. what I like to do is compare those two numbers so the things I ask I sometimes ask my clients so how many people and the way I define a developer is can you commit code bigger right? yeah right so can you commit code so so you know another show I, you know I think quality people are really really important in software I think they're most underrated most important people in software development are quality people but they don't commit code right um, uh, uh, PMs don't commit code right Right. Same in sales, you know, sales function, you know. Um, who carries uh, quota? Quota uh, carrying you know, versus code yeah. committing. I love it. Yeah, but it's, it's like who gets fired if they are making, you know, if, if they are, you know, who signs contracts, who, who, no, so I'm not talking pre-sales. I'm not talking marketing. I'm not talking lead gen. I'm, I'm saying like, like, like commission carrying, um, uh, contract carrying. signing people. Yeah. And what's yeah. the ratio between number of engineer, number of code commits and number of, of uh, of bag carrying people, right? Yeah, that's a fascinating ratio. And when you look at the successful scaling software companies, right? What do you think that? What do you, what is your guess of what you think that ratio would be? Is it the ratio between the ratios, or are we just talking about the general density of? of uh, no, the ratio. The, so, so if you've got doers to if, helpers, if what company A has five sales, five bag carriers, yeah. and and two engineers. Uh, company D has you know fifty engineers and thirty uh, quota oh, carriers. Oh, the ratio of the actual got it right. Code yeah. writers to quota carriers. I'm guessing one to one. If I just had to pick one out of the air, you know, you're wrong, dude. You're wrong. What is it? It's like one. It's like three three quota carriers to to one coder. Uh, okay. If yeah, you look yeah, at yeah. Salesforce, if you look at like really successful companies, yeah, you're looking at scale. Sorry, yeah, yeah. move at scale. <laughs> You know, and, and once you have, you know, my theory is, is once you've got good market fit, right, right, the, the efforts of one engineer, right, should be able to support the, the sales activities of multiple salespeople. Yeah. Okay. So well, it's like um, one to three, like I see, like, well, look at, look at the, the Salesforce, uh, uh, Microsoft and so on. And it's similar to the, to the, to the, um, you know, when you break it down to the, to the, to the, um, uh, you know, the, when you look at, 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 you know, engineering organization spend compared to sales and marketing spend, you know, they end up being in a similar, oh, a similar kind of one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. That was the clue I missed. Um, yeah. So I, I don't disagree with your conclusion. I think I was probably thinking a too small scale. Plus, for whatever it's worth, I'm going to take us back to the main topic. One yep. of the ratios that I like to look at, I didn't realize we had this in common, is quota-carrying salespeople to billable consultants. And that, in enterprise software, in my experience, tends to be one-to-one. Um, and, and that was kind of leaning in that direction. But I think you're right. Two to three to one makes more sense, for, uh, especially as you get bigger, uh, for salespeople to devs. But let me try and take us back to where we were because uh, I think we're going to have – I love the asides, but I want to take us back. Um, yeah. We were trying to differentiate the big company versus the small company PM. Yeah. Um, you were basically saying that at a big company, it's, it's, it's lowercase p, capital M, and conversely, uh, you were talking about the organization you had because that's a very large organization in my mind, big, bigger than anything I've run in, in product management. Uh, mine was maybe 20 you know, mm-hmm. PMs. 
which I thought was big, but that was for the service cloud at Salesforce. Um, but the question for you also, and I'd like to answer this one myself as well after, um, but could you just give us a day in the life? Because I really want to make this, like what was a day in the life for you like at Salesforce? And then we'll come back and answer the same question yeah. for a So startup. a day in the life for me at SuccessFactors, you know, um, um, you know, it would vary from day to day, but what I try and do is, is you know, the advice that I once had from a mentor was to spend the first first hour of your day on your people, you know, um, you know, uh, because the day runs away with you if you don't, you know, so I'll try and do, you know, one-on-ones with my, at least with my German team, so I was managing teams across the world, but I'll try and do, you know, one-on-one with my, with my, uh, one-on-ones with my close team. Um, <clears throat> once a week, I do a stand-up with everyone that was in the office, you know, just like literally a stand-up, like what you would, you know, stand around in a circle, say, hey, what have you been working on? What's worrying you? Where do you need help? Yeah, so that would be kind of the first hour or so, you know, the first hour or so in the day. Um, uh, I'd be dealing, I'd meet a lot with the head of engineering, so to understand how we are. Um, the big thing that I was, was always concerned with engineering was, you know, do we have the capacity that we said we had when we planned? Yeah. And that was always the biggest thing in my mind. And, you know, there's another aside related to this. Always try to measure capacity to a decimal point. Right, right. So we have forty-seven point four engineers working on this release, yeah, uh, or this feature, or this part of the product. Um, this uh, in this uh, in this uh, in this development cycle. Um, <clears throat> so I spent a lot of my time doing that. I spent a fair bit of my time when we were scaling doing recruiting. Yeah, and that would be a that's a, that's I think that's a big part both in a small company that's growing and in a big company as you're doing a, a lot of recruiting. And a lot of managing, you know, a lot of managing the team. Um, um, one of the things I used to spend a lot of time doing is in, in my day was trying to communicate, you know, why are we doing things? Um, you know, why are we, you know, why did we deprioritize this? Why did we, why did we move that up the priority list? Pro, you know, organizing that was a, you know, discussing priorities and communicating priorities was really what I saw as a fundamental part of my, you know, fundamental part of my role. Um, um, a second thing that I think, took a lot of time would be engaging with the field, um, you know, engaging with sales and engaging with marketing to make sure that, that uh, you, know, you know, supporting, and I probably did too much of this in hindsight, you know, supporting the big deals, you know, when you were, you know, when you were competing, you know, against your major competitors for, you know, for a, a, a nine-digit, you know, nine-digit revenue deal, you know, those were the ones that I would get involved in and, you know, I would spend quite a bit of time often, you know, traveling and, and participating in the, in those kind of, uh, in those kind of situations. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time also dealing with, you know, dealing with being a subsidiary of a large company. Um, that took a lot of time. Um, and so I would be dealing with, um, uh, you know, which SAP platform technologies do we, do we or don't we use, uh, you know, how do we, um, um, you, know, you know, which data, SAP data, you know, how do we work with SAP data centers compared to, you know, external data centers and so on. So there was a lot of discussion and politics about, about how we worked in SAP and then also how to integrate within the products of SAP. So it was a mixture, I think, of, there was a lot of internal stuff when you get to that sort of scale. Um, so whereas I was bringing a big team into the sense of success factors, it was still within an SAP, you know, within a hierarchy within SAP. And so I had to manage, spend quite a lot of time managing, you know, managing, you know, managing that as well. So it was a mix of all those things, a mix of customer, a mix of, a mix of, uh, 
of uh, time, you know, focusing on, on, on really on the why of the product. And I really tried to leave the how to people that knew that better than me. You know, um, one of the things that I always tried to do, always tried to do in a product leader, uh, and this is a really important thing, is you, you, you have to define the scope of responsibility of the people that work for you. Right. So that, so people always talk, you know, when, so when you get a question, so when someone questions a product decision, right, uh, so why are you building, um, you know, why did you decide to build, uh, you know, this feature in the US benefits product and not this feature? Yeah. I would always say, well, that's a discussion that you need to be having with the product manager on US benefits. Right, because they're the expert in that. I'm not, and and um, you're going to have to have something really, really special for me to override the decision that the PM made on that product. So I think one of the most important things you can do as a PM leader is you back your PMs in the area of expertise, because the worst thing you can do is dabble at being a product, at being a PO. Right, once you're a product leader, you've got to get out of details in individual, in, 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 in other people's turf. And actually your job is to define the scope so that people have, you know, uh, other, your, your product managers beneath you have, you know, have their zone of expertise and their zone of decision-making. And you need to create that, that zone where they are the, where they're the undisputed leader of that, of that product. But otherwise then people from above, and sideways metal, and that's really, really um, uh, corrosive if you're not careful. Excellent answer. Um, I'm going to reset the room very quickly. Uh, you're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. Uh, we are our own special guests today. We're talking about PM and the difference uh, between big and small company PMs from two perspectives. One, from the hiring perspective, um, if you're a startup and you're looking to hire somebody, who should you hire uh, based on background? And then also from the PM perspective, if you're a PM and you're trying to develop your resume, how can you make yourself most attractive for the the job you think you want? Um, The room is being recorded. And uh, thanks for joining us. Um, Thomas, I'd like to try and answer that question myself, uh, just to tell you. Because one of the things I love about PM is how different it is. So I'm going to tell you my job at Salesforce um, when I was there. So I was uh, the GM for the service cloud, which is slightly different than PM. We can talk about that if you want mm-hmm. in a minute. But, but, I, but my only direct reports were PMs, let's be right. clear. And, okay. and I do think that's typical, right? Because you're, PM is a very influence function. Like we had, and by the way, you're going to love this, we had 80 overlay salespeople for my product. Uh-huh. And we had 35 developers, which is right in line with your ratio, <laughs> by the way. Uh, so uh, we had an overlay sales force that did not report to me. That was Matrix slash Influence. But l- luckily, I knew the woman who ran it from a prior life. So that worked great. We, we had our entire engineering org that re- reported up to engineering. But we had we had 100 engineers and 35 developers or, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. But 35 code writers, code committee developers, yep. um, and 100 people total. $500 million business at the time, second second album for Salesforce, or second product. Um, and that job was, um, first, all about influence, uh, because the yeah. only people I actually managed were the, the 20 PMs, and they were maybe in six teams of three, right? Yeah. All specialized by function, like, like you do. I had expert in knowledge base, ex- expert in uh, in you know, computer telephony integration, um, yeah. what else to call, you know, call center stuff. Um, <clears throat> so um, the, the day... 
because the question was day in life. First, we did a lot of customer briefings uh, with either prospective customers or existing customers. But one of the things I loved about Salesforce, I think any startup or any company at scale should do is run a big executive briefing center. And Salesforce was phenomenal at it. We had like three to four rooms, an entire floor of the building, and, and they were all full all the time. And, mm-hmm. and, the, and I could literally see in person five customers a week never leaving the office. Right. And I thought oh, it was cool. great. <laughs> um, so, so we spent a lot of time in the EBC, uh, all of us, uh, me and my, my heads. Um, the second thing we spent a lot of time on was internal presentations. So the, one of the idiosyncratic things about Salesforce is the standard of PowerPoint slide at a Salesforce internal meeting is better than 95 out of 100 companies for an external meeting. I would say the same, I would say the same at SAP. Yeah. Oh, it's true. It's literally insane how good their slides are. I'd say if um, there was a Premier League of slides in my day, I'd say that it was like McKinsey. It was like sort of McKinsey, Accenture... SAP internal with a sort of Champions League of slide presentations and you know SAP external was 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 you're playing you know playing very much in the in the minor leagues compared to the internal internal slide decks right which is at some level I hope you agree crazy completely uh, insane <laughs> completely insane because the amount of work to make those slides like it, it, somebody has to do it, and at least when I was at Salesforce, it was largely my team, uh, along maybe with some help from marketing. But for the most part, we spent a lot of time, too much time, preparing for internal meetings. And look, I don't mind preparing the content, but but hours and hours and hours on making every slide, quote, unquote, perfect. Um, so that was a, a big thing, preparing for internal meetings in general. Um, when it came to product, I, I personally, I think a little bit like you, I wasn't really that close to it. Um, I could have been, right? But, 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 but the fact of the matter is you've got the scrum teams, you've got the PMs, they're the domain experts. So I would see the product primarily, the big meeting I prepared for was the three RRR, the three release roadmap review. Um, Salesforce at the time. Yeah, did three releases a year. Uh, look, I love Agile and Scrum. I think the occupational hazard of Agile and Scrum is is, is that when I taught my teenagers how to drive, don't drive looking at the hood ornament, right? You need to look out in front of the car. And I think if you don't have a 3RRR, you run a risk of just living life, sprint review to sprint review, exactly, and you're just yeah. looking 30 feet in front of the car. So that was the huge meeting at Salesforce. And it was basically, it was a three-day meeting. Um, and every group and team went in and presented their three release roadmap to, to Parker Harris, the co-founder yeah. of the company, um, and maybe some other folks too, some of the architects. And uh, But it was a huge meeting. So there was a huge amount of effort preparing the three RR right. at my level. At the PM level, they were doing you know the next level of that work. But for yeah. me, it was like, here's the integrated service cloud, three release roadmap review. Here's what we're doing. And here's you know, blah, blah, blah. The next thing we spent a lot of time on was M&A, um, either working with corp dev to like look at deals they found, right? Because to me, M&A uh, always has two sides of it. There's kind of who we want to buy and, and then what's up for sale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? And it's either PM going to corp dev saying, hey, do you got any knowledge base providers out there? Do you have any mobile scheduling people out there? And then it's corp dev to PM saying, hey, some guy just called us and they're either raising money or selling their company. So there's that push and pull of M&A. Exactly, and that yeah. can take a, a lot of time for the yeah. senior role. Yeah. Sounds like you had a similar thing. Yeah, not not as much as I, probably not as much as I would have liked, um, uh, but yeah, that was um, that was part of yeah that was that was lurking there. Sometimes the the, the M and A would arrive, arrive something as a fait accompli. Um, uh, oh God, which, yes, yeah, that was one of the biggest of arguments I had at Salesforce during the time I was there. <laughs> Is I knew something was going to be a fait accompli, and I put it on my list, and my boss didn't want it to be there, and I'm like. 
I just saw Mark Benioff in the hallway. He said, we're going to buy this company. I just put it on top of my list. And it was like, we shouldn't buy that company. He's like, your problem's with Mark, not with me, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, what do I do for the fait accompli, you know? Because uh, I agree with you. Sometimes they come and it's it's officially stamped, like, we're buying this company. Go go explain why. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's almost the dead opposite, like yeah. that wild horses yeah, will make you buy this company. Yeah, on, on that as well, I, I was, um, 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 you know, I always try to think, I'd look back at my week and say, you know, I want to make sure that I'm spending more time thinking about the future releases than dealing with the current one. You know, when I say the current one, I mean the current one in development, you know. And, um, you know, when you, you know, we had the thing at Success Factors where, you know, when we acquired by SAP, we went from, you know, a couple of hundred salespeople selling Success Factors to, you know, you know 20,000 SAP people pitching stuff. So you can imagine, you know, the 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 scale we went from you know growing faster success factors to this sort of hyper internal scale thing within 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 um, within SAP. So you, you find yourself spending a lot of time you know firefighting with customers about a previous release, which is not a great thing to be doing as a leader. You know, um, uh, you need people who can do that with you and for you. But if you're spending a lot of time dealing with, you know, trying to unwind issues in a previous release or previous problems, that's really, you know, you're not going to be spending time setting the vision. At the same time, if you're spending too much time on the current release, it means you're too much in the details and you haven't freed up your PMs to do the, you know, to, to actually, you know, focus on the details. And I think the thing to do as a product leader is like, what are the top three things we're going to be doing in the next three years, you know, and and really understand the why of that, you know, and, 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 yeah. and be, I think your most important thing as a product leader at the top is, is being able to define the, the, the nose, you know, and say, no, we're not doing that. And to provide the air cover for the PM who comes to you and says, I don't think we should do this, you know, and, and you need to go back on, you know, it's constantly batting on their behalf to, to safeguard the, the engineering capacity from, yeah, what I call the rhinos. Do you know the term rhino, Dave? Uh, I think it's a different meaning in the U.S. right now. Keep going. <laughs> right. So rhino is a is a, a really hot, uh, innovative new opportunity, right? And oh, it's oh, when okay, somebody so. from sales comes in and says, you know, if we had this feature, we'd close this deal and we'd close fifty more. You know, so why don't you guys build it? And you know, some other senior sales leader will say, gee, that's a great idea. Why haven't you guys built this? And then suddenly you'll suddenly find that, you know, out of, the, out of nowhere you've got this, you know, this is now the number one sudden priority of where we've got to build this to win this yeah. deal. And I'm like, you know, and, and you know, a junior, P, uh, you know, even a, even a middle PM will just get crunched by, you know, a sales leader in that situation. That's where, you know, I spent a lot of my time, you know, you're really backing the PM to say why we couldn't do this thing, you know. Um, so the, uh, I think... I think rhinos are similar to what I call BSOs, bright, shiny objects. I'm, I'm yes, not sure that's the same thing. Exactly the same. Exactly <laughs> the same thing. So you have the rhinos, you know, the dangerous things in product management, you know, rhinos and hippos, you know about those now, and the other one is a kangaroo. I've told I, you know, about, I know the hippo, the highest, the, the highest paid person's opinion is the hippo, yeah. I assume. And what's so, a kangaroo? So kangaroo, it's a story that, 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 that I learned from Volvo, right? About, about, Oh, about six or seven years ago, Volvo were, were experimenting with their, um, uh, they had a very successful pilot in Sweden for automated driving or assisted automated driving. It wasn't completely automated driving, but it was the assisted thing, right? 
And they developed a, a series of features, and they were very good at dealing with snow, dealing with ice, um, dealing with reindeer, dealing with elk, uh, dealing with all the you know all the the, the difficulties of of of, of uh, driving in Sweden and Finland and so on. You know, and some bright spark in 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 in, uh, in marketing somewhere. You know, landed them up with a with a deal in um, in uh, Australia. And so they arrived in Australia and pretty quickly they figured out, you know, overtaking those big trucks, you know, those trucks with like 14 different, like almost like a train that they have in Australia, um, you know, dealing with mirages and dealing with melting tarmac on roads, you know, all the things to do with heat. But the one thing that totally screwed them up was a kangaroo um, because it, it, it's a three-dimensional exercise with a kangaroo because it jumps up and down. And that totally foiled any kind of distance sensor device. Right, because the distance sensing device typically would look how big is the object, right, and then they would know how far away it was from the object. But with a kangaroo, with it jumping up and down, that totally distorted the 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 um, uh, the navigation the navigation, the navigation yeah, thing. Yeah. So it, it it blew the project up by by, by three years. Um, and I may be you know mixing up the facts here, but you get the sense of it. So basically, a kangaroo is a requirement that you didn't expect. Yeah. Right. It's a valid requirement that you never saw coming. And, awesome. And they come all the time. And so you have to be aware of, be, you know, my, my, my thing was in the meeting, I would, I would put up like, you know, beware of the kangaroo. You know, and where is the, you know, where's the kangaroo going to be in this, uh, you know, in this, uh, you know, in this product, you know, in this, in this release. Because there's always one. Yeah. You heard it here first. Rhinos, hippos, and kangaroos uh, applied to PM. Okay, Thomas, let me take it back to, to – uh, I want to get us back on the thread, and I want to finish answering my Salesforce Day in the Life and then ask another question. So uh, I was talking about Salesforce Day in the Life. I was saying it was largely a matrix job, a lot of customer work, a huge amount of internal meeting prep, M&A work, both from the evaluation perspective we discussed already, the kind of two sides of that, but also integration. We were wrestling with a couple of difficult integrations in my area. That was a lot of time. Um, then messaging to sales, spending time with sales for sure. Platform decisions, like you mentioned, I remember like big amounts of time being spent on who builds the routing engine because the customer service needs one for routing cases, sales needs one for routing leads. Do we do this on the platform? Do we build our own? You know, that sort of architectural slash platform issue. Yeah. And then finally deal support. So that was my day in the life uh, when I was at Salesforce. You heard about Thomas's when he was at Success Factors. Uh, the question, Thomas, is: Is everything we've talked about? Would you hire either one of us who did that job into a startup? I mean, does it make you remotely qualified <laughs> to do the job at small scale? Thoughts? Uh, I don't think it does. You know, yeah. uh, um, I think. Well, put it that way. This, this. I think there's some things that you that you do uh, in that. Uh, in that role that you also do in a startup, but I think you know they're probably ten minutes in your day compared to ten hours in your day. You know, uh, sure you have to manage the CEO politics when you're in a startup, but you know, you know, if you have a problem with CEO politics in a startup, then you probably shouldn't be in this that particular startup. You know, um, uh, you know, if you don't get on with your, you know, if if you have challenges with you know engineering leadership and you you, know, you can't sit down over coffee and resolve them. In a startup, then you know, then you've got a whole different set of problems. So, um, uh, the things that are big problems in 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 the enterprise in a large software company are small problems in a in a small one. So, I, I don't think that that 
that in the startup there's a lot. I think there's a with the scale up. I think that's where it, that's where it starts to blur. But in the startup, I you know I'm not sure that the leader, you know, somebody who's who's you know had you know five or ten years running you know running big product teams and and dealing with big budgets, you know, is equipped to do the the, the startup job uh, particularly well because actually. And even in the P of product in the large company, your job is normally a big part of it is dealing with the technical debt and the maintenance of the existing product to try and free up enough capacity to do innovation. Right. In the startup phase, you know, it's, you know, 90% you're trying to innovate. And, you know, 10% you're trying to deal with, you know, you're dealing with a little bit of you know, maybe a little bit of technical debt. Um, but you know, in the lot in and 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 in the large company, you know your your way to innovate is to the most the best way you can innovate in a large software company. I think is if you can be really really you can really get your your inhibitors under control. And you know, I used to joke at Success Factors that I had three inhibitors. I had what I used to call um, uh, 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 sales credits. Right, that's with that's the things that the Salesforce promised that didn't exist. Right, um, then I would have things that I would call um, um, uh, uh, success factors debt. Right, and those were technical debt think problems that success factors create. And then I had the SAP tax, which were the problems that being part of a large company were having to you know use uh, technology proprietary SAP technologies that weren't really quite cloud ready yet. You know, so those are the three inhibitors that I had had to deal with, and managing those inhibitors was actually more important than actually the innovation itself, because my job I felt was to create space for that innovation, and and the best way that I could innovate was actually by doing a better job of managing those managing the inhibitors. Whereas if you're in a startup, you know, you really have to be spending 80 90 percent of your time thinking about innovation. Yeah. Agree. So um, two things. One, you mentioned something a while back I, w- I wanted to jump on because I thought it was super important, which was the notion of being ahead or behind. Um, and uh, if I could just look at an, an executive's career and you could only tell me one piece of information and I had to predict their success, it would be are they perceived by their boss and peers as somebody out in front of the company or somebody being dragged behind the company, like the, you yep. know, the dog on the bumper in vacation or, or out on the bowsprit to mix metaphors, right, pointing the way. Um, that is just so important. Um, and I just wanted to, to reinforce that point that you made, basically. I also think that that in a big company, the the how you that influence question is really really key, you know, um, because you've got to sometimes influence people that you, you sometimes you don't even really know very well, you know, you know when you're in a startup, you know, you 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 know people, you know you you're together, you know all the time. Well, you might be online or whatever, but you 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 have a much uh, you know tighter I'd say commingling of 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 work and and goals and so on. And when a small company, you're, you, you in a startup, you tend to all it's a much more uh, homogeneic set of goals and transparent set of goals than when you're in a bigger company. 
Right. Agree. I mean, right. I, I've, I've told you this story before, but for me, the single most traumatic aspect of going from CEO of $80 million company to GM of business at Salesforce was that no one answered my phone calls. <laughs> Literally, it's like when you're running an $80 million company, everybody answers your call on the first ring. Yeah. And yeah. at a giant company like Salesforce, you have to influence people who you can't really even talk to. They, They're they hard to access. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, let alone interview. Yeah. All right, so back to so so great point you made there about the, I want to call it the career telltale. Are you on the bowsprit or behind the bumper? We've got to got to find a better metaphor. Um, but the the question I want to take us back to the question of you know, in some ways when I'm listening to you answer first, I feel like that job prepares you more to actually found a startup than go work at one. Right? Uh, I think you're right. You're much better off maybe working at a scale up than a startup. Yeah. Uh, I would be interested in your view on that line. But but what do you, let me flip this to a question for you. Um, what do you do? You advise clients on like hiring either their first PM or their first VP of PM, and and when do you like what profile do you tell them to look for? Ho- hopefully not the job that you and I had. Maybe, maybe yeah. the people who work for us, or do you just say no? Go find another startup. Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah. Um, so I, I think the the yeah. So again, it comes back to the context thing. You know, um, I, I'm so I got into PM. From I got to give you a background here before I answer this one, but but my, my approach into PM was from subject matter expertise into PM, right, right, and so I had to learn a lot about PM fairly quickly, um, uh, and then since then I've become interested in, in, in PM. So yeah, in your mind, in my mind, always you, you you have this tension between you know depending it depends. So this comes back to the context. It depends a little bit about what you're building, right. So yeah, if you're building something that that's that's you know that's highly complex, and 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 uh, so if you're building payroll, for instance, you know, you know, you know one of the things, you know, PM's got to know something about payroll, right? Because it's not something you can learn in a weekend, right? Right. So you've got to, you know, some some products where where the use case is very very simple, and what you're trying to achieve is, you know, you know pretty straightforward, um, and doesn't require a whole lot of like you know deep intellectual compliance requirements or whatever, then you know, a PM that's really good at the at the at the uh, process of PM is really really important part of the hire. But you you've got to be careful that you 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 understand the 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 subject, you know, the kind of subject matter that you're going to be building in the product. So ideally, I'm looking for people that have both. They understand the subject matter area and they understand being a you know being a product manager. Um, the thing I ask people to look for the most, and it's it's a hard thing to assess, but is you know the 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 willingness of people to be curious and the people to be learned and people to learn you know because the product management job is really about you know it's really about learning every day you have to be learning you have to be learning something every every day whether it's about the product that you're building itself or whether it's about the process of being a better pm it's really it really really is an on the on the job on the job learning so i want to be able to help people identify the fact that the person that they're hiring has, you know, has a sense of curiosity, you know, has a sense of willingness to learn and, and is interested in, in that process of continuous learning. I, I think for me, that's above all, that's what I ask people. That's, that's what I ask people to, 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 um, uh, to look for. Um, that point about being able to influence, being able to influence others without having direct reporting control. So red flags for me is, you know, when the PM asks, like, when you're interviewing somebody, so how many direct reports will I have? Yeah. Um, that for me is like, you know, when, if that's one of the early questions people ask, then it probably means they don't understand the job. 
Um, so the direct report thing is is a bit of a uh, you know a bit of a head warning. If they're asking questions like you know, geez, you know, how many engineers are we like to you know how many engineers are we like to have? How far are we in? You know, how have you defined product market fit? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. What is the ideal customer? If they're asking those kind of questions, then that's those are the kind of people you want as PMs. So plug for our episode with Aaron Kalb, co-founder of Relation. Uh, he drug he dug into that topic a lot in. in uh, I, can't, I think his question was, tell me about a product you really like. <coughs> yeah. Tell me a product you really don't like. Now tell me what you think the people who built the product you don't like were thinking. <laughs> right? oh, and, that's and great. He was, uh, yeah, he was overall testing for kind of curiosity and open-mindedness, which I think is, is you, you were emphasizing the curiosity, but I think they're super important. As I've mentioned on previous shows, curiosity in sales is also super important. Yeah. Um, <coughs> you hit on the age-old tension between domain uh, and PM skills, yeah. right? Um, and, and I think I think it was our podcast that you were interviewing somebody where they were basically arguing. In many cases, it's easier to, to, to teach PM than teach domain, right? Clinical trials or some of the other examples you've used, um, or you know, payroll, whatever it may be. Um, so I agree with that. But I think the, the question I have is: Look, I do work with startups, and, and I try to advise CEOs, often product-oriented CEOs, right, who had that yeah. GM job. And they're trying to figure out when to hire a head of PM and what it should look like. Um, and I don't, I mean, my general advice would be to find somebody working for us, right? Like the people who had the job that I had typically went on to be CEOs or founders. Like one of them is CEO of Guidewire right now. I mean, they're landing oh. in big jobs. Um, so that's good prep for a big job if, if you have the right background before it too, which is also very important. Yeah. Um, but... For hiring for that startup, or I'm doing a lot of my work these days, I would tend to want to hire the, the first-line manager. I would call them the director or the VP yeah. if it's a big enough company. Uh, and those people have a chance. But in my opinion, if they've never worked at a startup before, just say they have domain. So, so wow, you've got domain. It's call center. You've done call center. Um, the question is, if they've never worked at a startup somewhere in their background, I probably wouldn't touch them. If it was big company, big company, Salesforce. I think it's just too hard. If, if, and this, by the way, is going to flip the coin over, Thomas, to, to career management. Uh-huh. I believe if you want to be the head of PM in an early stage startup, which I think is a fun and lucrative job, the best way to prepare yourself is kind of alternate between startups and big companies so you can get the breath. Kind of like, because we never actually asked the question, what is the PM job at a little company? Mm-hmm. I just call it jack of all trades. <laughs> We've yeah, talked a lot about the yeah. big company because I don't think people really understand what it is because um, it's really very little P, as you point out. Um, a little company, I think people understand. It's jack of all trades. But, but in my mind, and I'd love to hear your view on this, and maybe it's too utopian because there aren't that many people who've done this, but, but, but I'd say go get somebody out of a big company because you learn and get big, big, you know, best practices, relationships. You, you just learn a lot in a big company. But if you've never worked at a small company, I'm really worried you're, gonna, you're just going to die. <laughs> I, I think so. Stuff. I mean, um, it's also. I think it also depends on the person. You know, someone might say, "Well, you know, I've really, really thought this through." You know, and so if you have that person on the big company, I wouldn't say like like you said, like totally avoid them. I, I think you can. I think maybe it's a step back from that. But they've got to convince you that they want to do a startup. You know, and you know, and you you know, they've got to understand that. You know, they will be ordering their own laptop. They will be. You know that. You know the the. You know, the, they will be doing their own, you know, the, you know, there isn't, you know, admin help. There isn't, you know, any of the things you expect in a big, you know, in a, in a big company. You know, there isn't somebody out there, uh, 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 you know, sorting out the, 
you know, sorting out the benefits plan and whatever, you know, you, you know, you have to do so much more on your own. You know? And um, I think it's those cultural on your own things that are, that are quite hard when people move from, 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 uh, you know, big company to, to, to very early stage, you know, to very early stage startup. I think, you know, once a startup's got a couple of hundred people, you know, then you have all those, you know, you have the HRs and you have the, you know, the processes in place and so on. You know, and they're not, it's not that different then from a big company, you know, but I think the very small startup, you know, that's a tough, you know, that's a tough uh, uh, move. And I think the people, you know, there's the, the, you know, there's a financial security angle of the big company thing, you know, you know, are, are people actually, you know, senior people in a position to do the startup? Are they comfortable with the idea that, you know, you know, maybe you might not get, you know, maybe this job doesn't, maybe this company doesn't exist in three months. And I think if they can understand that this company might exist, not exist in three months, and they're comfortable with that, then they'll cope with moving to startup. But I think a lot of people in a big company, you take it for granted that the that, that, that the big companies, you know, going to continue to exist. And that's the difference with a startup is that, you know, it's an existential question because, you know, the chances are that in a year's time, this thing might not exist. And, you know, are you comfortable with, you know, are you comfortable with that level of risk? And that's probably the biggest factor for me to try and determine. I don't know how you ask that question, but that's that's the one that I'd be worried about. Yeah, the big person. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to flip to the candidate mode, but but um, look, here's what I advise people because because I, I don't just work with companies. I like you, I'm sure I have a broad network of friends who kind of call me every now and then and ask for career advice. And and, and my my general advice on this whole question is trying to get experience of both big and small. Yeah. If you want to go to a high quality small opportunity, come from a big company. Could be like, ooh, we're hiring somebody from Salesforce, we're hiring somebody from Zoom, we're hiring somebody from you know Splunk, or we're hiring somebody from kind of big name company that gets people excited. The VCs like it, right? But but the CEO is to be wondering like, can this person survive here? It's great that you're coming from a big brand, but 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 that's where the rest of your resume, right, the stuff you did before you went to big co. Uh, yeah. matters. So, so, so my advice is if you want to get, I think one of the most fun and most lucrative jobs is joining kind of a scale up stage as head of product. Cause you know, look, it's a well-paid job. You get a lot of equity. You, yeah. A lot of the risk has been beaten out of the company already. Cause you're not joining back at the early startup phase that you're talking about where who knows if we're going to be here six months from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way to get that job is in my mind, you get it coming off the big company but but if now I'm going to be that that scale up, if I'm looking at three guys all from big company, all with domain, all with good PM background, who's worked at the startup before, and, and that's yeah, going to take I, so I, much. I, risk. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. I think what take you know the, the the one that's interesting is for me is that um, is the you know youngster coming out of university that that or you know wants to you know wants to do PM and there's kind of two there's two sides to it. Do you go in the big co? You know, do you take a junior PM PM job in big co? Um, you know, learn how big co's do it, and for a couple of years or a year or two, and then you know, move into startup land. You know, or do you just jump into startup land and you know, figure it out as you go along? You know, and you know, I'm not sure about. I mean, I'm not sure about that one either. You know. Yeah, I mean, look, I have a point of view on that one. Um, start at big co, uh, and then jump. Uh, why? Because you're going to build relationships, and and there's big and there's big, right? If yeah. big if big means Oracle, no. <laughs> if big, you know, it's, so we got we should define terms. Um, but in, in some ways, um, I, I do this with my kids. Like my son just started at Google. He finished a PhD and he went cool. to Google, and I think I think it's good because <laughs> like go to Google, learn best practices, be there for a few years, and if you like it, stay. But if you don't, then think of the people you'll have met, the network you'll have built, the big company practices, then go little. 
Um, did a, as long as I'm talking about my kids, my daughter is a brand manager. She wants to get into tech, but she started consumer marketing. And, and I believe consumer marketers often do well in tech. So, so go build the skills of being a brand manager and running a product and running a business and then try to go to kind of a consumer-facing tech company as the bridge. So, yeah, so I'm a so. believer. You, you just learn so much with a couple of years. It doesn't have to be 10 years, right? Two, three years at a big company. And then go. Then yeah, go I think play. I think what's happened in, in you know do the people in sales. I think that you know friends who in sales. I say you know go and do the big company for a while um, because if you look at you know like 15 years ago, people went to IBM and you know learned how to sell. You know were trained by IBM how to be good salespeople. You know you know the the, the art and discipline of selling. You know if you go back 15 20 years, IBM was the place to learn that. You know. You know how to do the large enterprise sell, what it works, how it works. You know multiple buying centers, da 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 da. You know you, you spend two or three years at at IBM. They send you on great training courses. They really they mentor you. They build you up. And you you know you came out of IBM. You know as in the in the nineties as you know people in the nineties the startups in the nineties the best people to hire for sales were IBMers, right? And I think a little there's a little bit of that. You know I think if you look at if I think if I look at how SAP's improved in terms of the sales academy, um, I think it's an awesome setup that they've got now. That you know, people, young people come in, they spend a bit of time in pre-sales, they spend a bit of time in, they spend a bit of time in direct sales, they spend a bit of time in telesales, they spend a bit of time in you know, shadowing, you know, shadowing big account, you know, people managing large accounts, you know, and after you know after a year or two of that, they they really are strong. And if they then say, okay, I don't really want to be in a large company, I want to be a startup, then that's a great hire. Yeah. So, Obviously, so, if you have somebody that's a twenty years of large enterprise sales only in large software companies moving to startup, that can be a disaster. But that that education and discipline that you get in a large company, I think, is cool. What be interesting for me, Dave, is you know what's the best company today to learn product at? And you know, um, so I, let me answer first on sales because because you touched on um, the IBM sales training, and that was true back in the day. The, the modern equivalent is basically, believe it or not, and this is crazy because Xerox was another one back in the day. Yeah, kind exactly, of crappy yeah. company, but they yeah. had phenomenal sales training. Yeah. Um, today, it, the next generation of that was PTC, Parametric Technology, it was then known. Um, and they have created a kind of generation of sales leaders, including John McMahon, who uh-huh. was head of sales at Blade Logic and MongoDB, written a book oh, wow. called The Qualified Sales Leader. And uh-huh. that mafia is today what the and that's basically the spring off of the PTC mafia. Right, right. That's okay. the uh, that's the leading sales mafia. Oh, cool. If you want to do hardcore enterprise sales um, on product, I don't know who the best company is uh, and who's the. Like, where's the place you want to come out of? I mean, some people would say Apple. I would probably disagree, certainly for enterprise. Um, I don't know. what. Inter- I mean, I'd say Salesforce, but I'm probably biased. I mean, I think they do a great job of training PMs and, and making great PM leaders. Um, yeah, you know, I, I have friends I, at yeah, SAP, right? Say, I, I, know, think SAP I don't think, I think, it, I don't think it's, you know, as much as I enjoyed my time at SAP and I have huge respect for the company, I don't think it's SAP. I don't think it has a product-led, has an engineering-led culture, which is different from a product-led culture. Um, uh, that's a whole other show. Agreed. It's a bit of a walled garden, right? And yeah. I think people, I think if you spend too much time at SAP, you get branded SAP person and, and, and you, you will have trouble. Like somewhere between eight and 12 years, like that's the yellow zone. I think beyond that, people just go, oh, SAP lifer, you know, yeah. they, they, they'll never be able to work anywhere else. They, they've yeah. adapted to the conditions of that environment and cannot yes. survive outside yes. it. Yeah. There, is, there, is, there, is, there is that. Uh, um, yeah, so I think, I think, um, uh, um, yeah, Salesforce is probably probably one. I think today kind of interesting was probably someone like Zoom. Um, um, yeah, some of the some of the companies that have had that 
that real, you know, that real hyper growth, you know, um, yeah, I think of people like, you know, I think, you know, working with someone like Ross Mayfield at Zoom would be, you know, would be really cool, you know, um, yeah, he's had that startup exposure, that whatever, the, 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 you know, some of those people that have had that real, that real product discipline learned from them. But I, I don't know of a company yet that has really got the, the, that discipline of a product curriculum. You know, when I mean curriculum, I don't mean just lessons. I mean, you know, how do you actually, you know, how do you actually develop people as PMs? If you look at the Accentures and McKinsey's and that, they know how to develop people as consultants, you know, um, um, you know, yep. you go into those companies and you, you start small and you, you know, you feel overwhelmed at first and then not, then a little while you can do it and then you, you know, push you up to the next level or push you up to the next level. You know, I think we don't have that discipline yet in PM in terms of, of you know, being able to give people, you know, responsibility for a small thing and then give them a bit responsibility for a bigger thing. We, we haven't really developed that, that, the models yet in PM, I think, to have that, that kind of growth. It's still very much, you know, figure it out as you go along. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that one. We'll have to try and research it because it would be good. It would be good to know. Because by the way, I can think of companies that have great products and multiple products, which is part of the formula in my mind, yeah. like Atlassian. I just don't know how they train and teach and develop PMs. A friend of mine was a PM at Zoom. I think that's a good candidate. Um, and but uh, but they don't really have that many products. So so to me, I'd want it to look like Atlassian. Because um, because if you're going to be really good at this, in my mind, it can't be a one product company. It's got to be a multi product company because yeah. because that's forced them to kind of build a system for management. Yeah, I think a lesson a lesson would be a lesson would be high on my list, you know. And you know, look also look for the people that are that are writing thoughtfully about product uh, as part of their you know find the time to write thoughtfully about product. So you know, perhaps if you're looking for a job in product. Maybe one of the things, as you're interviewing, you know, because when you go for a job interview, you're doing two things, right? You're interviewing, you know, you're interviewing the company and the company's interviewing you. And, you know, maybe the question you should ask it when you, you know, in one of your early interviews is, you know, how's this organization going to help me become a great product manager? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then great so you question. turn it around. And, and, and so, you know, if you, if you look at that lesson and stuff, that one of the things that always impressed me when I first looked at Atlassian, you know, um, uh, way back when we started is they were always writing about what they were doing you know the, the product leaders were always you know writing in an open transparent way at how they were building their products and they, they they took great pride in communicating about their processes and the way they worked right from you know right from early on and you know if a leader can find you know calm up the time to to write about what they're doing um, in a thoughtful way they're probably a pretty good manager but pretty pretty good manager of their time as well you know uh, but that's an easy thing to push off if you know, you know, I blog about you know how I handle with you know how do I you know how do I handle escalations or you know how do I handle roadmap blockages or you know how do I think about roadmaps? You know, if if product leaders are spending time to write about those kind of things, then they're probably pretty cool people to learn from. Yeah, awesome. Okay, guys, we got about four minutes left. If there's a, we got time for one question from the audience, if anybody wants to uh, weigh in. Uh, we've not been great at getting questions historically, but I'll open it up uh, for a quick one. And other, if I don't see any hands go up, I'll, I'll start to wrap us up here. Thomas, did you have any? Well, let me see if I have any closing thoughts, and I'll come back to you. Uh, I mean, look to me. My, my closing thoughts on this episode would be the jobs are shockingly different, <laughs> right, between big company and little company PM. And, and I think it's easy to forget what the job of a big company PM is, which is why I wanted to spend so much time discussing it in kind of real detail. 
Um, I, I think big company PMs in general, uh, heads of PM, uh, end up making better CEOs and founders than they do PMs at big uh, at other well, or, or advisors. Companies. Or advisors. Yeah, or advisors. We make, we make yeah. good advisors. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 hard to go into a you know ten million dollar startup as head of PM. I just think it, it wouldn't work that well. I'd rather get one of their direct reports. Uh, I, I think you know the age old question of domain versus not. I think it, it all depends on domain complexity. So some stuff you can learn, some stuff you can't. Um, and and you know, I'm guessing clinical trial processes are pretty hard to learn. Uh, I know that call center. By the way, I thought call center would be easy. And it was at one level, but there was a lot more there than I knew about, right? Even stuff that looks easy can be hard. So, so domain yeah. definitely matters. Um, and I think those are my my, my common uh, my takeaways. The other one was just the whole telltale of be perceived of being ahead of the company. I mean that that's huge for your career. Don't be perceived as being behind the bumper, being dragged along. That's really bad for your career. Yeah, that's for agree. you, Thomas. Yeah, I'm no, I think you, I think you kind of you know I think you kind of nailed it, Dave. I think um, yeah. My advice again, I keep going, but you know I say this all the time as a PM is that you know, you've got to keep learning. Um, um, you know, that, that's what differentiates the best ones from, from the okay ones is, you know, it's great having, you know, having great a lot of experience, but if, if you're not able to learn from that experience and to, you know, and to constantly, you know, constantly improve, you know, I kind of, you know, on that, I'd say, you know, you know, good PM people, you know, what have they read about PM lately? You know, what other PMs do they respect? You know, uh, who else have they learned from? And, you know, if people can't answer that question, then they're, they're probably just a little bit insulin. They've probably not been learning much over the last couple of years. So you want to avoid working for those kind of people. True, true. I love your point as well about people who take the time to write. It means they're being thoughtful about it. They're not just executing. They're stepping back and kind of conceptualizing it and building a model for how to execute. Um, and, and that, I think, is a, a real sign of a thought. Yeah. And, and you can tell when it's there writing it and when they've had somebody ghostwrite it. You know, you can, oh, tell, God, that, yes. you can tell that pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, you can. Um, super. Okay, everybody. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. You have listened to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. The room has been recorded and will be published as our podcast, the SaaS Product Power Breakfast podcast. Boy, there's a lot of P's and B's in there. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, I'll be spinning down the room in about five seconds. See you next week.